Turn in your copy of scriptures, please, so you can follow along to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. This passage has a couple of pretty clear statements that it makes to us as it did to Israel. First, that since we've been grafted into the tree that was Israel, we are loved. Loved with an everlasting love. Love that isn't dependent upon what we've done or can do or will do. And then as I was thinking about this week, I realized it also talks to a a message that God's been uh, placing in my life. And that is that, you know, whenever our plans are, man proposes, but God disposes. And sometimes when we don't want something, nonetheless, it happens. And sometimes those are what other people might think of as pleasant surprises. But we really didn't want that responsibility. And yet God has given it to us. In this case, however, it's not good news. And it's still something that nobody else can prevent. Read with me, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1. An oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountain into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now if you will join I came across uh, this letter to the editor this week in our local paper. I am filing for divorce. I can't take it any longer. The years of disappointment, the continual dashing of hope, the broken promises, the unrepentant, it will be better next year, the total disregard for my feelings. All this after 30 years together. Yes, it's official. I am no longer a Washington Redskins fan. I'm officially single. I'm on the prowl at the nearest sports bar looking for a new team to embrace. Those wonderfully entertaining New Orleans Saints and Green Bay Packers come immediately to mind. I find myself fantasizing about being a part of who dat nation or a cheesehead. But those somewhat arrogant but always winning New England Patriots are another possibility. Maybe I could settle on Tim Tebow's team. Who knows? I'm ready to be courted during the playoffs. Imagine recapturing the thrills of yesteryear, actually 20 years ago, when January meant something to a D.C. football fan. So goodbye, Redskins. Hello, you sexy others. If anyone is interested, you can find all my Redskin paraphernalia in the classifieds. 
Ed Lentz, Springfield, Virginia. That, my friends, is disillusionment. Uh, You see, disillusionment is a step beyond mere disappointment. Uh, Disappointment hurts your feelings. Disillusionment destroys your view of reality. The world is not what you thought it was, and somehow you feel betrayed by it. Disillusionment. Uh, Perhaps on a more serious note, I associate disillusionment often with what is called the midlife crisis. The midlife crisis. You know about that time. It, it, It takes the wind right out of the sails of youth. Youth is that time of hopes and dreams and of unlimited possibilities. It's a time when you can reach for the stars, but then something happens as people begin to travel through their 40s, perhaps. All the the, the joyous expectations about life get dashed by the hard rocks of reality, and in reaching for the stars, they, they get burned, and their hopes are buried under the demands of life. And perhaps it was when you begin to notice that your bodies are just not what they used to be. Gone is the vim and vigor of younger years. Joints stiffen. Muscles ache. The body fills out in some places. It thins out in others. Many feel the strain of midlife in their job. Years of faithful service don't seem to have paid off. Gone is the challenge of work, the satisfaction of work, and you feel younger colleagues nipping at your heels, hungry for your position. And you wake up one day with a sudden realization that you never will become the president of the company after all. Or maybe it hits at home. The kids don't depend on you as they once did. I mean, you you don't feel as needed or loved. And your marriage, stuck in a rut, feeling bored, you don't communicate, you share no common interests, and the whole thing seems very unappealing the midlife crisis. It's a time of disillusionment, and you feel that all your hopes in life were nothing but illusions. Your dreams were mere fantasies. You're you're discouraged, and you're, you're doubting. You're prone to drift into a dreary apathy, easily led into cynicism or even sin. But these are Feelings of disillusionment aren't necessarily tied to to age. They can come at any time, and being a Christian doesn't make you immune, immune from them. In fact, nothing can more quickly lead to disillusionment and cynicism than a shattered faith. You see, the Christian is given great reason to hope and to dream. The Christian is encouraged to be optimistic about the future and to expect great things from God. I mean, the Bible is full of glorious promises, isn't it? When you become a Christian, you're, you're promised a, a personal relationship with the God of the universe. You're adopted into God's family as his own son or daughter. You, you have God's spirit now living within you, a new power to, to help you live in this abundant life. And Christ will be with you always. He, he stands ready and willing to hear your prayers. Whatever you ask for, if you believe, it will be yours. And perhaps you once did believe those things. Once you had a vibrant faith, your walk with Christ was exciting, and and now maybe you've entered into a kind of spiritual midlife. Things just aren't the same. I mean, you haven't given up on God. I mean, you're here. You're here every Sunday. But you don't really expect much from God anymore. You read the Bible occasionally, but it's no longer a, a living word from the Lord. You, you pray at odd moments, but really it's just when things aren't going very well, but there's no life to it. 
you know you've, you've lost your first love. And your faith doesn't shield you from disillusionment. In fact, one might even say that without faith, disillusionment is not possible. Only those who hope can be disappointed. Only those who trust can be betrayed. Only those who dream, dream for this, this fullness of the abundant Christian life, only those who dream can have those dreams destroyed when that fullness is not experienced. So whether it's a midlife crisis or a crisis of faith, I think it's a rare person who never struggles with disillusionment when things just don't turn out as you'd hoped. But what we suffer as individuals, Israel suffered as a nation. They suffered as a nation in the stage of life that's addressed by the prophet Malachi. In 586 B.C., Jerusalem had been destroyed by the invading Babylonians, and nearly an entire generation had been led into captivity, uh, deported to the land of, of her conquerors. But the prophets of God had begun to prepare them for a glorious new future. And the people had understood the prophets to say that when they returned to Jerusalem, when they rebuilt the temple, when they reinstituted the worship of the Lord, the land would would rebound with wonderful and, and marvelous, miraculous fruitfulness. There will be showers of blessing, Ezekiel had said. The Lord himself would return to his temple. The population would swell to a mighty throng. Israel would once again be a great nation. Kings from other nations would come and bow before them. A great day was coming. The Messianic age was just around the corner. And the gateway to this glorious future seemed wide open when the Persian Empire under Cyrus conquered the Babylonians and Cyrus issued a decree allowing the Jewish exiles to return to Jerusalem. And in the book of Ezra, we learned that a, that a small but enthusiastic group did return, and they began work on the temple. This was no easy task. We read of the opposition from local inhabitants, uh, distractions from within the camp, scant rain, poor crops, but, and the people's enthusiasm begins to wane. And through the encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, progress was made, and still the people clung to the promises of a coming day of great glory. Then the temple was completed. But it seems so small, so insignificant compared to the glories of Solomon's temple. Jerusalem's walls were rebuilt, but, but the city within those walls was just about all the territory that these people really controlled. They lived in their own land, but they really didn't have any freedom. The Babylonian rulers were simply replaced by the Persians, and the people were still living more like slaves. Where was the power of King David, which was to return to Israel? Where was his glorious kingdom? Beginning with great hope and promise, these were now harsh times in Israel's history. Their dreams had vanished into thin air. They hung on to the forms of religion, but their heart just wasn't in it. Oh yes, they they made their sacrificial offerings. But instead of holy, unblemished animals, now they brought the blind, the crippled, the diseased, the outcasts of the herd and the flock. They, They kept the best for themselves. They robbed God by holding back and giving the, the required tithes to the temple. The, the priests not only refused to speak against such practices, but seemed to encourage them by the half-hearted way they went about their own duties. These were disillusioned people. Many openly complained about their dismal conditions. Life wasn't fair. 
God appeared to, to treat the good and the, and the evil alike. There was no reward in serving God, they said. Where was, where was the God of justice, they asked. And the distinctiveness of their faith as members of the people of Israel began to lose its relevance. Some divorced their wives and married women from the surrounding pagan nations. Discouragement, doubt, apathy, cynicism, and sin. It was a midlife crisis in Israel. These people were disillusioned with life. They were disillusioned with God. And to a nation in this condition, the Lord speaks. He sends a prophet known to us only by the name Malachi. Malachi, not Malachi, the Italian prophet. No, this is Malachi. Which means in Hebrew, my messenger. Malachi, God's messenger to a disillusioned people. This is going to be our topic on Sunday mornings in the next uh, eight weeks or so. As we study the last of the, the books of the Old Testament. And here we see God's message of rebuke, God's message of challenge, God's message of warning, and most of all, God's message of assurance and hope to these people. For that's where the prophet begins. God's first word, his primary word to his people is just that. Found in verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you, says the Lord. You see, God's entered, he entered into this, this situation of disillusionment and he utters a simple word of grace. I have loved you, I have always loved you, and I love you still, he says. But as you might expect, the Israelites are not totally receptive to this simple proclamation. They're like, like children who are blind to the ever-present love of a father or mother, blind to the constant protection and provision lavished upon them year after year. And they ask almost in a tone of contempt, how have you loved us? What have you done for us lately? What is this love you talk about? We don't see it. If you loved us, we would see your power at work in our nation. We would see your hand at work in our lives. you ever felt like saying that to God? I have. And it is indeed a testimony to the humility and patience of God that he even responds to such an audacious question. He condescends as if speaking to a two-year-old to assure the Israelites of his abiding love. And in the words of our text this morning, we too can take comfort. What does it mean, Lord, when you say, I have loved you? And perhaps implicit in that question is another. What does it matter? And those are the questions we want to ask this morning as we consider the opening passage here in this prophecy of Malachi. Malachi 1.1, an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. What is this love that the Lord is speaking of here? I mean, that's not a simple question. Love is a many-splendored thing. The word can mean all sorts of things. In tennis, it means nothing. In marriage, it can mean everything. Well, here the Lord directs our attention to a particular kind of love. When he says, Was not Esau's, Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Now, you remember the story of uh, Esau and Jacob. They were the twin sons of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and his wife, Rebekah. And before they were born, the Lord says to their mother, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. 
One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. And who was the older? The older was Esau. He was the firstborn, the primogenitor, the, the rightful heir of his father's wealth, and more important, the apparent heir of the covenant promise God had made to Abraham and his descendants. Esau was the firstborn. He was the older. But the Lord loved Jacob. And it was Jacob who inherited the covenant promises of God. It would be Jacob's descendants and not Esau's who would become the people of God. In his dream at Bethel in Genesis chapter 8, the the Lord says to Jacob, All people on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And Jacob would be renamed Israel and his 12 sons would form the 12 tribes of Israel. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. You see, the Lord set his love, his covenant love, on Jacob. God chose Jacob to be the heir of the promises to Abraham. And if the word love, when referring to Jacob here, has the force of to choose then the opposite word hate when referring to Esau should have the corresponding force. That is not to choose. That is to reject. I have chosen Jacob and Esau I have rejected. You see, love and hate here are not so much emotions as actions. God loved Jacob. He set his covenant love upon him. And that's the kind of love with which he now loved Israel in the time of Malachi. So what does this mean? What's the nature of this covenant love? Well, first, it reflects God's covenant commitment. You see, God's covenant first came to Abraham, and it came in the form of a promise. In one of the key verses of the entire Bible, Genesis 12, verse 2, the Lord says to Abram, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. Now, you see this. Notice the I will, I will, I will. The fulfillment of this promise didn't depend on anything Abraham had to do. It would be God's doing through Abraham. And so the Lord committed himself to his purpose of bringing blessing to the world through this man. And to be the heir of this promise was to be the object of the Lord's covenant commitment to bring blessing to the nation. So God's covenant love reflects God's covenant commitment to his people. And second, this covenant love reflects God's sovereign grace. God set his love on Jacob. Now, why did he do that? It wasn't because Jacob was better than Esau. God's love came to him before he had done anything, either good or bad. And when you read of his life in the book of Genesis, you know that Jacob was just about as devious and deceitful as a man could be. There's no reason why God loved Jacob, at least no reason that lay in Jacob. God simply chose to be the, Jacob to be the object of his sovereign, unconditional love. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that a matter of favoritism? It may appear that way until we see that if God were to be fair, he'd reject everyone. See, no one stands with rights before an almighty and holy God. He has no obligation toward any of us, none of us. But in his sovereign grace, he chose Jacob. 
And through Jacob, God chose to bestow his love upon an entire nation, Israel. God's chosen people, chosen to receive God's blessing, chosen to be a blessing to the world. And so God's covenant love flows from God's sovereign grace. It's his grace. Moses affirmed that when he said to the Israelites after the Exodus, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your forefathers that he brought you out of the, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, you weren't better than anybody. No, it was because of God's love, his sovereign grace upon you. And this is the point that the Apostle Paul makes when he quotes this very passage from Malachi in Romans chapter 9, verse 13. God's choice of Jacob reflects God's purpose in election. He chooses whom he wills to pour out his gracious love. Now, Paul anticipates an objection to this idea. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For the Lord says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend upon man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. A mercy freely, freely bestowed on those whom he chooses. In his sovereign grace, this love does not depend upon human desire or effort, but on God's sovereign grace. And third, God's covenant love reflects God's enduring faithfulness. Now listen to the psalmist, Psalm 89, verse 1. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You see, human beings are frail and fickle. The Lord never changes. We make promises and we break them. The Lord never does. And that's what his love, his covenant love is about. It is a dependable love. It is an enduring love. It is an everlasting love. You established your faithfulness in heaven itself. How have you loved us, the people ask. And the Lord responds, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. And then the Lord continues to draw up what it means that Esau has been rejected, that he was not the heir of the covenant promises of God. The Lord says, And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Verse 4 Edom may say, Edom was the nation that comprised Esau's offspring. Edom may say, Though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may rebuild, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You see, just as Esau had been contrasted with Jacob, so Edom had naturally become cast as the antithesis of Israel. And traced back to these two twin brothers, these two nations continued to fight like brothers throughout their histories. It was Edom who refused to allow Moses to lead the Israelites through their territory when they headed toward the promised land. And Edom invaded Israel or was invaded by Israel some four or five times. And we know from the prophet Obadiah that in Israel's devastating experience of being conquered by the Babylonians, the Edomites sided with the enemy. 
And they rejoiced at the misfortune of Israel. They acted as informants, carrying away loot, cutting off the escape route to those fleeing the cruelty of their invaders. So you have loved Jacob, have you? What does such love mean if Edom seems to get the better of us, the Israelites might be saying. And to that, the Lord presents his case, verse 3. Esau have I hated, and have turned his mountains into a wasteland, and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. You see, even as Malachi spoke to his countrymen who are now secure in their land with the temple rebuilt, Desert invaders known as the Nabataeans were ransacking the territory of Edom, forcing its population to flee to the desert land south of Jerusalem. The Lord had left Esau's inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. You see, Israel had returned to her battered homeland. Edom never will. That's God's promise. And they never have. And the Lord continues, they will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. And in this sense, the Lord does hate Esau, not arbitrarily, not in a petty way, no, because of his holy nature, he was offended by the sin of the Edomites in refusing to live righteously before him. This nation had become the object of God's righteous wrath. But you may ask, what is this, this fate of Edom? have to do with the love of God for Israel in her time of doubt and disillusionment. Well, the Lord directs the attention of his people to the nation of Edom, and he says to them, There, but for the grace of God, go you. I mean, would you be any better than they if I had not chosen to set my love upon you? Consider what I've done for you. Consider what I've made of you. Look at Edom and realize, There, but by the grace of God, go you. And so it is that the sad fate of Edom serves as an evidence of God's merciful grace toward Israel. And ultimately, God's judgment of Edom will show the world his holiness and his righteousness. You will see it with your own eyes, and you will say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. And when you see God's judgment of Edom, remember his love and his mercy toward you, and you will see the greatness of God. Such is the Lord's covenant love. You see, the God of the Bible has bound himself to fulfill his promise to bring blessing to the world through the offspring of Abraham. He has set his sovereign and gracious love on a people who will be his very own, a people who will ultimately come from all nations, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and he will be their God. In fact, he has purposed to restore creation itself, recreating the paradise of Eden in a new and glorious act of power and love. But how can the Lord do this? How can he do this? When the people he's chosen to bring salvation to the world, that people is itself in need of being saved. How can he do this when those who are meant to reveal God's righteousness are themselves corrupt? How can this covenant love find its true and final fulfillment? Well, the answer of the Bible is found in Jesus Christ. You see, God's covenant love is embodied in Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, all that Israel was called to do and be finds its fulfillment. He is that beloved one. He is that chosen one. At Jesus' baptism, a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
At the transfiguration on the mountain, a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my Son whom I have chosen. Listen to Him. And Matthew applies the words from Isaiah 42 to Jesus. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love in whom I delight. And Paul declares that no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. You see, this is the good news of the gospel. That God's covenant love, with all its promises of blessing, have now been realized in Jesus Christ. He is the true seed of Abraham. He is the rightful heir of the throne of David. He is the righteous one who dies for the unrighteous. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the presence of God himself among us. Emmanuel. God with us. And in his resurrection from the dead, the promised restoration of creation itself has already begun. And so we can wait in confidence for him to come again to bring his glorious purpose to fulfillment. And it is now through Jesus that God's covenant love and the blessing that goes with it can expand to include those of all nations. That you may ask, but, but how has God loved us? We don't belong to the nation of Israel. No, you see. But we belong to Christ. That, you see, is how the covenant love of God given to Israel now applies to us. By his death, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He took the penalty of sin upon himself. He redeemed us, Paul says in Galatians 3.14, in order that the blessing given to Abraham, the blessing that was carried on through Jacob, the blessing that was inherited by Israel, that blessing might come to the Gentiles through Jesus Christ. That is us. And so you see, through the proclamation of the saving message of the gospel, God is calling a people to himself, Jews and Gentiles. In his sovereign grace, he is setting his love upon people from all nations as he, by his Spirit, opens our blind eyes to see the truth of this glorious message, and, and he empowers us, by his Spirit, to respond in faith. That's what God is doing. And when we look upon the cross and see that Jesus Christ died for me, and that he rose from the dead to give me new life, the Spirit of God joins us to Christ. And when that happens, we know that God has loved us with the same covenant love that he chose to bestow on Jacob. And through Christ, the Apostle Paul assures us the blessing of Israel becomes ours. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in Ephesians chapter 1, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In Christ, we also were chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. This is the message of the gospel. You see, through Christ, we too share in this sovereign, unconditional, gracious, covenant love of God. He loves us. He's on our side. Nothing can separate us from his love. It is ours in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. You also were included in Christ 
When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance, that we are heirs of that promise until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, if you've turned from your sin, you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you desire to follow him as your Lord, then these words of Malachi are addressed to you. I have loved you, says the Lord. You're the object of God's covenant love. He's now committed to you. You are the recipient of his promised redemption. You are the recipient of his sovereign grace, a grace that sought you out when you had nothing, nothing at all, to commend you to God. And you can be assured of his enduring love. He is faithful. His love stands firm forever. That's what these words of the Lord through the prophet Malachi mean. So how do they matter? How do they matter? Let's be real. I mean, we face the same temptations the people of Israel in Malachi's day did. We struggle in a fallen world. Things don't go the way we hope, the way we expect. This world is fraught with unfulfilled desires. Our team doesn't always win. Our bodies aren't always pain-free. Our children aren't always healthy and happy. And you know, there is a sense in which we need to be disillusioned. When he was nine years old, Leo Tolstoy was convinced that God would help him fly. So he dove headfirst out of a third-floor window. He survived the crash landing, and he was instantly disillusioned. He was forever rid of the illusion that God would help uh, supply him with wings. And I think many Christians suffer from illusions about what to expect as believers in this world. Just because God loves you doesn't mean you won't suffer. Doesn't mean you won't get cancer, suffer a heart attack, lose your job. Jesus tried to warn us about all the trouble that being his follower could get us in, in this life. But still, you see, the Lord says to us as his people, I have loved you. I have loved you. Now don't, be, don't have fantasies about what that means, but be real. Be realistic. I am for you, Jesus. As you can trust me. My purposes for you are good. And you see, that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Yes, there are times when life just seems unfair. And in the midst of it, often God is silent. We pray and we pray and we get no answer. Our words just bounce off the ceiling and God remains hidden unseen, invisible, imperceptible in what can be a very chaotic world where the wicked prosper and the good die young. But the Lord's word to us this morning is that I have loved you. I have loved you. Do you believe it? How can you know it's true? How can you not grow disillusioned by our experiences in this world? Well, again, we can know that God really does love us by what is found in Jesus Christ. You see, never did the world appear more unfair than when on Good Friday, Jesus died on a cross. 
Never did God seem more silent and hidden than on that Saturday when Christ's body lay in that tomb. But on Sunday, God demonstrated that he is still good. He proved that he keeps his promises. He proved that he is faithful to his covenant love. I have loved you, says the Lord. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. It's true. I can be trusted. I can be trusted. And as Paul puts it so clearly, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? He's for us. Yes, this world is fraught with unfulfilled desire. And God made it that way. Because he wants us to see that this world is not all there is. And ultimately our hopes are not fulfilled in this world at all. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men, Paul writes. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ is coming again. One of the great theologians of the 20th century Karl Barth was once asked what was the most profound theological thought he ever had. He said it was this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. The Lord gives a simple message to a disillusioned people. I have loved you. And isn't that what we most need to know? That in this world, this fallen world, in this world that is so full of pain and suffering and uncertainty of all sorts, to know that God loves us. And he's proven that love in Jesus Christ. And he has plucked us out. He's showered us with his blessing by opening our eyes to understand and see his love in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. We are loved. Is this a love you've neglected? You know, it happens. It happens. It happens in a family. It happens in a marriage. Love is there, but it goes unnoticed. It goes unappreciated. As a child or as a husband or wife, we sometimes feel unloved. We're simply blind to a love that's really there. Instead of seeing the sure signs of love in a myriad of little ways every day, we, we take that love for granted and, and soon even our ability to love begins to fade and perhaps it dies off altogether. I, I like the story of the newlyweds. They're passionately in love. They always sat snuggled side by side in the front seat of the car whenever they drove anywhere. But as the years went on, the space between them began to grow As they got to middle age, she was practically leaning against the car door as he drove the car. One day she looked at her husband and she said, Dear, what's wrong with us? I can remember when we couldn't be close enough. Now look at us. And the husband just turned to her and said, Honey, in 20 years I've never moved. There's a sense in which that's true in our relationship with God. I have loved you. I have loved you with a faithful love. I have loved you with an enduring love. I have loved you in my sovereign grace. Don't let disillusionment set in. Don't let the the honeymoon wear off. Don't lose your hopes and dreams. Things that 
cause you to become careless, indifferent, apathetic, even cynical in your attitude toward God. So the Lord says this morning, I haven't moved. I have loved you, and I love you still. Will you believe it? Despite your circumstances, perhaps, will you believe it? And again, when I think of all that it means, nothing is as significant as this one simple truth. I have loved you, says the Lord. I shudder to think of the alternative. Let's pray.